Welcome to Free Thoughts. I'm Trevor Burrus. And I'm Aaron Powell. Joining us today is David Scarbeck, Associate Professor of Political Science at Brown University. His latest book is The Puzzle of Prison Order, How Life Behind Bars Varies Around the World. Welcome to Free Thoughts, David. Thanks. Happy to be here. So why is an economist writing about prisons? I suppose that's a fair question. Um, For me personally, I I think there's sort of two main questions. One is simply that as a matter of public policy and the state of American democracy, this is a really important issue to understand. The American criminal legal system and in really places of punishment around the world. So this is like, to me, one of the most pressing social issues uh, of our time. Uh, The second is that in studying prisons, uh, it actually allows us to Uh, better understand a lot of other questions that we care about. Where does order come from? How does exchange happen? How is violence regulated? Um, How does social organization emerge? And why does it look the way that it does? These are questions that social scientists and scholars interested in institutions study in a wide range of contemporary and historical locations. And the prison context provides, I think, an interesting and helpful context uh, in which to sort of pursue some of these broader questions in political economy. Do prisons get studied much in this way? Because my sense is for a lot of Americans, a lot of people, a prison is a place, you just throw people up there and then ignore it unless we hear, you know, really abhorrent stories. But otherwise, it's just we don't want to think about it. Yeah, prisons are tucked away from society. Um, they're, they're, they're porous places and that what happens behind bars often matters a lot for those of us who are uh, not incarcerated, uh, but they're difficult to observe. We don't run across them in our daily lives. Um, you know, with the caveat, of course, that in the United States, a large and growing number of people themselves and have family members who have been affected very much by the criminal justice system. Um, in terms of sort of academic studies, um, you know, my work is a little different in that I am leaning very heavily, one, on economic theories of institutions, as opposed to different sociological theories. They have the deprivation theory as one approach used to understand life in prison, and others, the importation theory. And I can talk about what those things mean. I I, I use a theory of institutions developed by Douglas North to understand the creation of European states. And it turns out that that broader framework of institutional analysis actually generates some very new knowledge, interesting questions, and generates what you know, I, I, I think are at least you know, useful answers to understanding uh, what goes on in prisons. It seems like some people would think that, and it's not, a, not an unreasonable thought, that if you talk about why prisons are different in different parts of the world, the obvious answer is because people are different in different parts of the world, uh, whether it's religiosity or level of violence or Americans' level of violence generally, but South and the South is much more violent than the rest of America. So if Southern prisons are more violent, the reason would seem to be that people are more violent down there. Yeah, that's a very reasonable sort of response or reaction. I think there's sort of two ways to think about it. The first is that um, prison social order in different countries is not always the same. There's a lot of historical variation that suggests that there's not something specific about that location or that prison system that determines for the, you know, for for its entire existence, what life will look like there. Um, A second is that I I actually just sort of agree that lots of these different cultural things do matter. Um, The nature of political systems matters a lot. Uh, But even when we control for those things, it looks like there's actually a lot that's not explained. And so I think this sort of economic approach um, provides an opportunity to dig into what some of those things are. And maybe if I could just sort of follow up to clarify a little bit, I think that prisons everywhere, by definition or practice, share some really fundamental similarities. Some of the most key characteristics and features of prisons are the same everywhere. They they 
take people who have been charged with or convicted of a crime. These people come disproportionately from disadvantaged social and economic backgrounds. While incarcerated, uh, they have very little choice with whom to socialize or live with, and there's no exit options. Each one of those characteristics is crucial to prisons in all the time periods that I've looked at. And when we think from a social science perspective, those are precisely the sorts of things that we look to to try to determine if social interactions are going to create value, are going to be on net, positive, beneficial, or whether they're going to be negative, where I'm going to maybe win and you're going to lose, or maybe we're both going to lose. So from a theoretical and then just a practical you know, what are prisons like standpoint, those are really important. And so I, start, I try to leverage that to say that prisons everywhere, we can't just explain them by looking at the cultures or the politics of those places, because these fundamental characteristics are the same. We talk about studying prison governance or how they're governed. What does that mean in practice? Because a prison is, you've got a bunch of people who have no rights and no ability to make decisions for themselves outside of the most minor edge cases, and then a group of people who have absolute authority to set all of the rules. So are they just, it's just kind of like North Korea or something. Like, is there, are there evolving forms of governance? Are there, do they approach it in different ways? Well, what I found really interesting in working on this book is that, you know, the description that you just gave of prisons is very true of many places, certainly true of many American prisons, but it's actually not true at all in many other parts of the world. Sometimes prisoners have tremendous freedom of movement. They can engage in economic activity. Uh, in many prisons, there are no, you know, there are no sources of official control and governance. And so the, the sort of book idea is try, to, is try to say, why do these things vary? Why does the degree to which prisoners act in solidarity, it being very important in some places but not others? Why do they organize in very centralized fashions, like with gangs in some places and not others? Um, and so, so, so I think that, that is, that's the puzzle that my, the book title you know, was pointing to, is why is it that the informal life of prisons looks so different given that they share such fundamental characteristics? And before we get into some of those examples, I think it'd be useful to talk about, and this is in the Douglas North tradition, government or governed versus governance, uh, what, what the difference is between those two things. So the argument would be that governance institutions perform some central roles in most societies. They define and enforce property rights. They create the context in which economic exchange can take place. Agreements are enforced. And they aid in the production of collective and public goods. So see, these are some of the big social infrastructures that any society needs. And the government often, sometimes, provides the governance institutions. What we find in prisons, uh, for part of the reasons that have been alluded to earlier, either because of lack of interest or resources, prison officials sometimes don't provide a lot of governance. There are um, needs for governance that prisoners have that officials either don't care about um, or can't actually perform. And so in looking at the book, I'm trying to study extra legal governance, governance that takes place outside of state-based legal institutions. And it turns out in many times and places, the prisoner produced extra legal governance is very important and sometimes more important than the governance provided by prison officials. You talk about a number of different prisons in the book. And so maybe we could start running through some of those and start with your example from Brazil. So across Latin America, there's, of course, variation in what their prison systems look like, both you know by states and with, even within states. Uh, but 
on average, or typically, prisons in Latin America have uh, very few resources. They have a very uh, poor administration of facilities, and they provide very ineffective governance over either social or economic activities. And so what that means in practice is that there are often very large prisons that are dramatically overcrowded, sometimes three or five times or greater uh, uh, the population than is uh, design capacity that it's for. There's very few prison staff relative to prisoners, sometimes hundreds of prisoners per staff member. They don't provide prisoners with basic necessities like food and water and health care. And as a result, these prisons are often very anarchic, sometimes very chaotic, but they're places of desperate poverty. And so when you when when I when I look in into the research on prisons in Brazil and Bolivia and places like those, what we see is often, not always, but often, that prisoners themselves um, they respond to the scarcity of resources by this lack of order, and they create institutions to provide the governance that officials are failing to provide. And so in one example that I look at in the book in Bolivia, prison officials don't even enter the prison facility. It is organized and run by prisoners themselves. Prisoners have to buy uh, their own place to sleep, to live. Um, there's a uh, Because there's freedom of movement, of economic resources from outside the prison into the prison, there's a sort of little market economy within the prison. So instead of relying on prison officials for the substance of your nutritional needs, prisoners turn to markets and civil society within the prison to gain access to those things. And that's just one example among many of how different types of informal institutions, you know, thriving might be too strong word, but they're existing, they're operating, they're working to some degree in the face of the state's failure to provide basic human rights. And that that's that chapter I couldn't figure out what I, it sounds, many times you're like, well, this sounds great. Like, uh, you know, we should, in terms of cost effectiveness, I mean, prison is kind of a strange institution anyway, because there's so much deadweight loss when the society is paying to someone to stay in a cage and also not produce, and they're not producing any economic gains. But in this one, it seemed to me that there was maybe something we can learn from there and say, like, especially the one in Bolivia, where it's basically just a, it sounds like a, a large walled off area where people are allowed to kind of behave, but then there are some real big drawbacks too. Escape from New York. Yes, escape from New York. There you go. <laughs> yeah. And so, and it's also, it's certainly important not to sort of overly romanticize what's going on. These are very dangerous, difficult, uh, deadly places to live. Um, but they do have advantages, right? And, and one advantage is that the prison staff are not there to abuse or torture uh, the incarcerated people. And we have countless examples across Latin America where that's a systematic process. Uh, you know, that's a, that's a practice that is widespread. Um, so that's one, you know, that's one, one par partial advantage. Um, the second is that there is freedom um, to exchange with visitors and family across Latin America, our, our large source of of food and water and clothing for prisoners. And, and that is an advantage in that they can often tailor or get what they want more so than you would with state provision. Uh, but it's also delegating the cost um, that the state should be paying or would be paying uh, to what are often very, uh, you know, sort of poor and marginalized communities and families. So that cost is still very much uh, being borne by by people there. The sort of, you know, aspect of the Latin American cases that do seem so interesting to me is that um, there is very little official control, and yet there's a proliferation, not of a single source of governance, but of a variety of different ones. And so in the Bolivian case that I discussed, there are these sort of civil society organizations. There's a 
Parents Association across Latin America. Um, children of incarcerated um, parents can often uh, live together. And so in Bolivia, you're allowed to do that until age eight. But in practice, um, children of all ages live within the prison. And the parents there, recognizing the needs and concerns of the kids, produced this little civil society organization to organize education activities, cultural activities, uh, and to watch out for them. And they create rules that other prisoners who don't have parents have to follow. You're not allowed to fight in the presence of one of the children in San Pedro prison. And according to people who have been incarcerated there who I spoke with, this isn't just like something nice that they like tell other prisoners. Prisoners respect and follow that rule. There's enough social pressure for it to work. So there's civil society organizations. There's a form of political organization. Uh, and as I mentioned, there's a sort of market economy in some strange sense within these prisons, which means that there are economic institutions that allow it to operate there. And so from a sort of social scientist perspective, that's what's interesting. It's not one institution to provide uh, some uniform type of governance. They're tailored to the very specific needs and the very unusual, um, from our perspective, the very unusual context in what they're operating. So there's not one big institution to do them all. There's many and varied types of institutions that are, are fairly functionally specific and tailored to the local needs and demands. Regarding the abuse by prison guards um, and the, I guess, the lack of it in the places where they're aren't enough prison guards to be doing all that much abuse. Do we see abuse by the prisoners at levels comparable to what abuse from the prison guards looks like in other places, or are prisoners less likely to abuse each other than the guards? Prisoners can absolutely be very abusive and predatory, and the worst examples are appalling and horrific. Um, large massacres, um, you know, Dozens of people being murdered and decapitated, sexual assault, just the worst examples are, are absolutely horrific. Um, what's interesting, though, is that in many instances, we see that horrible violence as transitory, as different groups vie for power. And if one gets into power, that tends to see violence drop. There's a fascinating um, research project by uh, Dr. Jennifer Pierce. And she looked at the Dominican Republic, where they have two parallel systems of incarceration. In one, it's this sort of old school, traditional Latin American approach. Mostly the prisoners are involved. Mostly officials are absent. And then one that looks more, you know, modern, to use sort of with some square, some square quotes, uh, more Western uh, uh, versions, where the prison officials have a much greater presence, there's better resources, and they're in charge in a way that we sort of would expect to see in an American prison. And so she surveyed um, people incarcerated in both prison systems to see where did they feel safest, where did they re feel respected, where was the moral performance of prisons better. And interestingly, she found a, a, mixed, uh, a, a mixed response. Prisoners um, like the resources that they get in the more Western, modern-style prisons, um, and they dislike the uh, sometimes arbitrary use of power by other prisoners in the old-school system. There's no clear winner in which system was preferable uh, after surveying a large number of prisoners. So, um, again, it's not to romanticize one over the other, but just to note that there's some serious differences in the way that we can organize social life um, in prisons. And if we skip over to the opposite end of Bolivia and to the Nordic countries, which I think it was, I was just Googling this to try and make sure that Anders Breivik, who killed 77 people, uh, was in 2014, he was demanding an upgraded PlayStation as a human rights violation because he has a PlayStation in his cell in Norway. Now, we 
I read those two chapters back to back, and my first thought uh, is it's a state capacity. Like Norwegian, Nordic countries like Norway are pretty well governed in a lot of different ways. So it's big, no big surprise that their prisons are fairly well ordered and highly governed from the top. And Bolivia is not so well governed. Sorry to any Bolivians out there, but you might agree with me. So that that just explains exactly why the prisons are different. So it's sort of a state capacity. They're just better at doing the things in Norway than they are in Bolivia. Yeah, and and, and that's that's some sort of a, an argument that I'm very sympathetic to, and and I think that it's not just state capacity, but uh, that's a big part of it. So uh, the culture, the popular opinion, the desire or willingness to provide the resources, like so in Bolivia, it doesn't seem if they had the resources that there would be popular support to invest it in their correctional facilities, for example. So there's clear cultural difference um, in the Nordic region that these should be places for rehabilitation. It, they have a much smaller prison system. It's a much more homogenous community. It's probably significantly easier to get the support and the resources needed to have the sort of high level of resources. They have incredibly effective prison administrators and the governance is substantial in those facilities. So. Um, so, so, so that's that's a crucial reason in the book. I argue that there's not a proliferation of extra legal governance institutions. The state is providing governance actually pretty dang effectively. So why would prisoners use their time and energy to try to reproduce um, or recreate the governance functions that the prison officials are already providing? I argue that they have very little reason to do so. Every now and then you'll see photographs get passed around on social media of the interior of a prison cell in a Nordic country and it looks like an Airbnb, you know, compared to then what we see from, we see photos from inside Rikers Island. And you mentioned the cultural thing, but is there, if the purpose of a prison is to ultimately, like we have them because we think having them will in some way prevent crime, you know, uh, either by rehabilitating or locking away or creating a disincentive because you don't want to go there. Is there a worry that it, that these super well-governed prisons where people can upgrade their PlayStations are they're put they're putting people away, yes, but that they're failing on these other metrics by which we would judge a prison succeeding? Yeah, and that's a great question. It's a little tricky to know. There's plenty of anecdotal accounts um, of Nordic prisoners who are just desperate to get out of the prison, right? The deprivation of liberty is substantial and to not be able to control your life, um, you know, that that's a real cost to many, many, many people. So it doesn't seem to be uh, that that alone is problematic. We can also look at other studies. There's been some nice, uh, well-identified studies in the American context of whether harsher prisons increase or reduce recidivism. And you might think if they're really harsh, then people will never want to go back. And so they'll, uh, then harsher prisons reduce recidivism. But that's not what we find. We find that uh, harsher prisons harden people, expose them to peers where there's learning about other uh, offending behavior that they might engage with. And so there's sort of, you know, sort of scattered evidence to suggest comparisons of, of recidivism rates across countries is like notoriously difficult to do because everything is measured differently and counted differently. Um, but it doesn't seem like the Nordic countries have much higher recidivism rates. If anything, it probably seems uh, much less. It's an interesting question, and you you understandably kind of touch on it just a few times in, in the conclusion of your book where you're like, the question of, well, which one is the best prison? 
is, you know, has so many different aspects of what the best prison is. There's how much it costs a society, how, how much it lowers crime actually, because on the Nordic side, a ratio of roughly one guard per prisoner is exceptionally high. And these, you know, very nice places, uh, as Aaron pointed out, looking kind of like an Airbnb. Um, so, I mean, but if we, so if we were to ask that question, what is best? I mean, do you have, what's the best way of thinking about it? Do you think? It depends why we have prisons and there's sort of four or five standard explanations. So, um, punishment, retribution is a, a very old one. And I think prisons are pretty effective at that. They're pretty good at punishing people. Um, even in the sort of so-called nicer Nordic models, um, that's a, that's a very real punishment. Um, deterrence, it, it seems like prisons aren't amazing at deterrence because um, as a penalty, incarceration comes pretty long after an offending choice has been made. And it's very uncertain and unlikely that a person will be incarcerated for any particular crime. We find in a wide range of studies that the best deterrents are swift, certain, and fair. And prisons, as used in most places, are definitely not swift or certain and don't seem terribly fair. So prisons as a form of deterrence, I think maybe that's effective when we don't use prisons very much and we they attract in the highest offending um, individuals first. Um, but that's not, that's not the go-to for deterrence. Um, and then in the question of, of rehabilitation, prisons are, are very um, difficult places. It's not obvious to me that people who have often suffered uh, trauma throughout their lives can go to a prison. Uh, which is often desperately poor, where there's incredible social pressure, there's the at least the threat or potential for violence, and that would be the sort of ideal environment or an effective environment to help solve what's often you know many years of of, of difficulties and challenges and mental health issues. Um, and then the, the final common explanation given for prisons is is a sort of expressive or symbolic one, is that they communicate to society, you know, what are the right values and what are the wrong values. And um, that's a tough one for a social scientist to, to, you know, empirically investigate. So the answer to which, which, which types of prisons are best depends on why, why we're turning to them, really. I was also, when reading the Nordic chapter, I was thinking back to a quote that I have often thought about, uh, I think I, I, from Brian Kaplan, he just said it to me when uh, he, when I was an intern at Cato and he came to give a talk uh, before I knew him very well. And I said, I said something like, well, doesn't the education system not work? And he said, ah, it may be work. It, it might work very well for the constituencies that have the most power, which would be like teachers unions, right? To say if, if your outcome is student education, maybe not which had me thinking about this Nordic model. And I don't know if you looked into this because I was wondering what the prison guard union's power is in those Nordic models because they could make it wildly skew, you know, the outcome of the prison system toward their desired result. Like one prison guard per prisoner is pretty excessive. <laughs> that's, a, that's a great question. I, I didn't look at it for the Nordic context. Um, the California case um, is probably the, uh, you know, a, a, a phenomenal uh, ideal case of what you're talking about. Joshua Page's book on uh, the toughest beat, it just documents the political machinery. This was the most powerful union, maybe second to the teachers unions in California. And for decades, they lobbied for tough on crime laws, they tough expansion of prisons, they funded um, victims' rights groups to push for these things, to expand the strength and power and resources of the union. And this is one of the things that often comes up when we talk about um, so-called private prisons or contracted out prisons, is that there's this idea that there's a profit motive for private companies, as if state actors don't have profit incentives. Maybe it's not financially and in, into their pockets, but it's indirectly through resources and power. Um, but that, yeah, that's an, it's an alternative explanation for why prisons are used. And it's not to 
benefit the prisoners or society, but a vested special interest there? And I think it's a, a terribly interesting question. So it may be difficult to figure out if a prison is working because we don't, as you said, there are multiple things that we could look to for that. But do, you know, in in like a free market economy, market agents respond to economic incentives. And so they have they have a product they're trying to sell and they measure success on the profit margins that they're earning. But if it's not working, then they basically change up what they're doing. And one of the arguments that libertarians have a lot about government is the government short circuits a lot of those mechanisms to readjust and so it just kind of keeps doing failed things. Do prisons change the way that they govern internally based on what they're seeing, recidivism or behavior, or do they just kind of stick to what they know? So it varies a a huge amount. A a lot of places, there's not going to be a lot of dynamism and innovation. It doesn't have the high-powered incentives that we look for in markets. So there's an information and incentive issue going on. Um, But some bureaucracies are more innovative than others. Um, In the state of Pennsylvania, I I know in particular that they tried a wide range of like very curious, interesting um, interventions that they measure. And they, they, they will randomize the presence of these like pet dogs or blue rooms that you can go and relax in or calm down in. Um, they did white noise in certain um, housing areas so that you could sleep better at night. You might think that would reduce tensions. And so there's opportunities to do stuff like this. Other than curiosity and, it's, it's, and maybe cultures of bureaucracies, it's not obvious sort of how widespread uh, that actually is or how to sort of get more of that. But, but that's the challenge is, is, is it, 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 there's also the broader bureaucracy is that prisons don't decide how many people enter their doors. Right? That's decided by local prosecutors, local political decision makers. They don't entirely decide how big their budgets are. And so they're also constrained in how much they can do those things. And that's the nature of, a, of sort of bureaucratic provision of, of public goods and, and, or, or public services, I should say. It was fascinating. I was excited when you go from Brazil, so prisoners co-govern, Bolivia, prisoners basically govern. Uh, Nordic countries, the government governs, the guards govern. And then you go to Andersonville, which is something I've been reading about since I was a kid, uh, the the prison in Georgia that where they held an excessively large amount of Union soldiers during the Civil War. And that one is just no government, seems like. No governance, no government. What was what was going on there? Yeah, so, I mean, this is a, a, um, a horrendous failure, a, a prisoner of war camp in the South during the last 14 or 15 months of the American Civil War. Incredibly high fatality rate. I think more than a third of prisoners perished. They died from uh, very preventable things, um, you know, simple diseases, uh, la- you know, Lack of uh, you know dysentery things that things that if you had basic nutrition, a large number of these people wouldn't have died. Um, like the prison in Bolivia, there were no guards within the prison. The officials didn't provide any effective administration. There was no um, provision of a substantial, you know, uh, good enough amount of food for prisoners. Um, but again, we see a total failure. Right? There's desperate starvation. Um, and there's no there's no proliferation of these extra legal governance institutions that I found and found so interesting in the Bolivian case, and officials didn't govern. So it, it is really actually a pretty horrific historical instance um, uh, to read about. And 
so the question is why? Why were they successful in Bolivia and why, why did they fail in Andersonville? And I, it seems that there's a few basic, you know, constraints that couldn't be overcome. The first is that um, POWs at Andersonville didn't have access to visits from friends and family on the outside. They had no economic um, outlet that they could turn to to fill in the gap in what officials didn't provide. That's a major hard constraint. The second is that uh, the camp was just a field. And very quickly, anything that would be remotely useful from an agricultural perspective or wood just to fuel fires to keep warm, these things are used up very quickly. And there's no productive capacity, essentially, in a barren field that at the height of the of the crowding was substantially overcrowded uh, with, you know, thousands of injured um, and sick soldiers. A final, I think, major explanation for the failure there um, was the mistaken belief that many of these uh, soldiers had that they would be released soon in a prisoner exchange. It was a very controversial political issue during the war. Uh, many people on both sides felt like it would prolong the, the war indefinitely if we kept exchanging prisoners back and forth. Um, but as we can tell from the diaries uh, of Camp prisoners, that there were constantly rumors swirling about amongst prisoners that they were going to be exchanged or released this week or next week. And that reduced substantially the time horizon uh, that it made sense for them to operate in, which is that I'm going to be leaving soon. Why invest now in permanent structures that are only worth it if I'm going to be here for many months or many years? Likewise, collective action against a sort of meager guard uh, uh, platoon, the, to, you know, collective action to overthrow the people who are incarcerating them. If you think you're probably going home in a week, that's a really dangerous and risky move to make. Um, but if you think you're going to be there for the, the remainder of the war or for the remainder of a period of a war that doesn't seem to be stopping, um, the logic changes and you might very well have been willing to overthrow those things. So I think taken together, the inability to engage in any sort of productive or distributive exchange um, and these harsh constraints um, prevented them from having the resources or incentive to produce extra legal governance. And that seems to, I, mean, I like you, you analyzed it as you would as an economist on the individual decision-making level. Why are these people not making the decision to, you know, join gangs for, I mean, you know, gangs that provide some sort of support or protection, for example. But then in your, in your previous book, when you, which is, which is about the California gangs, the social order of the underworld, how prison gangs govern the American penal system. It, does that imply that the length of, of sentences and the punitive nature as it has gone up, especially since the 80s and 90s, contributes to formation of gangs because the time horizon of prisoners is longer. Yeah, I think that's one important aspect to the story. So, you know, I haven't looked at the data very much recently, but my understanding is that the median sentence length didn't actually go up very much. So it's something like two years. But on the high end, the longer sentences, those go way up. So one side of the distribution gets a lot bigger. And I think one consequence of that, in addition to larger populations, was that there was a core of people who had very long time horizons. They had incentive to entrench some sort of political and social institutions. And they had the ability to reproduce those things because they were there for five years, they were 10 years, they were there for life. And so they had an incentive to not treat this as some transitory social community. You could also contrast it with county jails. 
County jails are very hectic places. They, they hold people who are serving uh, a year or less, and often much less. There's a lot of churn and turnover of who's there. So there's constantly new people arriving and maybe people who know what's going on who are leaving. And jails, according to incarcerated people, tend to be very chaotic places. And some are often relieved to get to state prisons uh, for a calmer, uh, more stable social environment. And so that the, the length of time that people are going to interact with, I think, yes, absolutely matters for the calculus in deciding what they're going to do. Do we see more gang formation in more violent prisons in the sense that they're forming them in order to have some form of protection? Or is gang formation more just the kind of things people do when the same way that cliques form in middle schools is not chiefly about violence, deterrence, and so on? So it's a, it's, it's a tremendously difficult question to answer, actually, because two things could be going on, at least. One is that people are joining gangs and using the organization of the gang to be violent. Or it could be that in the face of violence, people are forming gangs to protect themselves from violence. And since we can't randomize where prisons are more or less violent, it's actually pretty difficult to tease out, are both of those things true? What's going on? Is one true, not the other? Um, and there's also a, a sort of second question, which is, what's the appropriate counterfactual that we're comparing something to? So um, historically, in California, people formed gangs after violence was increasing in response to that violence. They also used the gangs to commit violence. Um, but if you look at the California prison system today, I, I don't think necessarily that gangs make them safer than they would have been in the pre-gang era. But if you were to take away the structures of control and not replace it with better official governance, violence might very well go, go much higher. So the question is more violent compared to what? And it depends a little bit, actually, I mean, from a social science perspective, but from a policy perspective, what are we comparing the rate of violence to? Um, so I hope that was sufficiently vague to dodge answering the question. <laughs> um, but this is a good time because we didn't get a chance to... to have you on for your last book, and it's relevant to when you talk about women's prisons in California. But I mean, I thought the, the, the book is about gangs and prisons, but the most interesting thing, which I'd like you to elaborate on in your, in your last book, is how gangs in California prisons affect outside of the prison. They actually provide governing, incarcerated bandits, I think is the term you use. They provide good, governing institutions for people outside the prison. How does that work? Yeah, and so this is what I sort of hinted at earlier in talking about porous walls. So the way that we rehabilitate or fail to rehabilitate people in prison, 90, 98% of them are going to be released in the U.S., so that matters. But it turns out that in many places, in California, Texas, Chicago, New York, um, the gangs that control within prisons are able to project that power outside of prisons. In Los Angeles, um, where this was sort of done arguably earliest and certainly very effectively, Hispanic street gangs that sell drugs across LA County send a, a sale, a tax, a drug tax or gang tax of somewhere between 10 and 30% to a relatively small number of incarcerated prison gang leaders. And they do that for two main reasons. The first is that they anticipate 
that they'll go to prison at some point in the future, and these gangs have a credible threat to hurt them. The gangs have fairly uh, well-documented records where they write down everyone who doesn't pay uh, the taxes. So if you show up and you're on that list, you're in trouble. That's an incentive to say, I know I'm going to get locked up. Everybody does occasionally. I'm going to pay now to avoid trouble later. A second is that many of a person's uh, fellow uh, gang members are already incarcerated, and they can be used as a hostage. And we'll say, we're going to hurt your friend if you don't send the taxes. So, you know, there's a far fewer prison gang members than street gang members in Los Angeles. And we'd think they were weak because they were stuck inside a prison. You couldn't directly and immediately threaten and carry out a threat. But it turns out because they control this space, they have a big incentive, uh, the big ability to extract these resources. And so the stationary bandit metaphor comes in next in, uh, without going into the details of the example, because prison gangs have this financial incentive in the activities of people on the street, they have an incentive to keep those people safe. They have an incentive to encourage people to respect the territory as it's drawn, because if they're safe and they're selling drugs, then the gang is getting its tax. So they're financially inclined then to try to regulate. They, as we know through uh, you know court documents, they are often the adjudicator of disputes when even rival gangs who all pay to the Mexican mafia uh, have disputes. So they'll make decisions and, and resolve conflicts to try to avoid violence. And in one of the most striking examples, um, the prison gang produced, you know, a, a ruling, an edict that you could no longer do drive-by shootings. Drive-by shootings are very costly, um, especially to the extent that it harms, you know, innocent individuals. It attracts really negative law enforcement and media attention, and that attention uh, can often substantially reduce or shut down drug activity that could be profiting the prison gangs. And so in the early 1990s, they basically said, you can't do a drive-by shooting. We saw a dramatic decline um, in deaths by drive-by shootings, but not in deaths. They continued to hurt each other, but they did it in a way that was less likely to negatively affect the market activity that was taking place. And so I thought that was just a really fascinating and interesting example of how a group that can extract and credibly threaten you may actually, through a sort of invisible hand, you know, mechanism, produce something that we would sort of want good governance to produce, which is regulating these things that are massively costly uh, for people who are not involved. So it's like I was recently reading a book about the history of law enforcement in LA in the 40s and 50s, and it's the same like gangsters, Mickey Cohen running his outfits from behind a prison cell. It was just like half of the time they were running them right out of their cells and kind of keeping the peace between different competing factions. But I one you know one characteristic of prisons is that they are segre segregated by sex. And so this a lot of the stuff that we've talked about, the the violence, the formation of governance, the the gangs, what do these look like in women's prisons? Yeah, so they're they're strikingly different and they're strikingly different in that in California, um, the social order in women's prisons has essentially remained the same since the 1960s. It's not changed. In men's prisons, there was no gangs, then gangs dominated. But there's just striking similarity. And you know, one possible explanation is that women don't join street gangs, so there's no street gangs to import into the prison. But that's not true, actually. Uh, many gangs have women, and there are gangs of only women. 
Another argument might be that women, for whatever genetic or social reasons, are less likely to engage in violence. 80% of violent crime in America is attributed to um, male, uh, male offenders. Um, but in prisons, in a variety of different locations, it's very common to find that women fight at higher rates amongst each other than men do in men's prisons. Sometimes it's at equal rates, which, given the rates of violence on the outside, is substantially larger, um, and in some places even more frequently than men fight. And so I, I think neither of those explains why there's not gangs in women's prisons. My argument is that there's no gangs like in men's prisons and women's prisons because they have small communities. And in small prisons, you can rely on these decentralized uh, mechanisms, things like norms, gossip about people, ostracizing people. These are highly effective. They don't require a lot of physical resources. They don't require a lot of social organizing and collective action. And because in small populations, you really care about your standing. You don't want to be ostracized. Um, you don't. You know, the, the, those, those threats are serious, and those threats are often um, effective. In the men's prison, before we had gangs, that's what they relied on as well, norms. But as the prison size and the men's populations grew, each one of those things becomes much less effective. You don't know what the appropriate norms are. You don't know what everyone's reputation is. You're ostracized by one group, but you can go to another. And when those fail, you need to invest in something more centralized like gangs. But in women's prisons, they don't. They're not racially segregated like men's prisons either. They rely on a set of norms uh, about respecting people's property and space uh, and behavior. Um, they do sometimes, although certainly not always, form... Uh, what they call play families. They're sort of reproducing the sort of traditional nuclear family. There'll be a woman who takes on the role as the mom and the dad. Sometimes they'll adopt kids. There's aunts and uncles. Um, but these are not organized like gangs are. There's not a lifetime membership. They're not racially segregated. They're not primarily in charge of the economic activity of women's prisons. Um, so it's providing a similar source uh, for some gangs, uh, for the women, in providing you know, community and friendship uh, and camaraderie. Um, but it has a totally different organizational structure. And that's because in these small prisons, you don't need to invest in the more elaborate structures that uh, men's prison gangs often do. It seems that if there's, and as you point out in the conclusion, there, the normative claims that you can make, again, it's it's a difficult area to study with really hard data, but the normative claims that you can make about what seems to cause you know better functioning of extra legal governance in size is is one of them, as you pointed out in women's prison and also in the English and Welsh prisons. Uh, does homogeneity seem to ma seem to matter in terms of both whether it's ethnicity, religion, any other sort of factor? Yeah, I, I think. You know, so so speaking in a very multifaceted, multidimensional way, the sort of you know in in sociology we might talk about this as social distance, and if you have low social distance, maybe you share a culture, a worldview, an ethnicity, a religion, a community, um, for a variety of reasons, multiple reasons. When we have low social distance, we tend to get along with each other better. Maybe we all agree on what's acceptable behavior, what constitutes a deviation from that behavior, and what the appropriate punishment is, for example. But as we become more different in these various and vast types of ways, there's less consensus, there's less other regarding behavior, there's less ability to rely on shared traditions and worldviews and religious beliefs, and so it becomes more difficult uh, to organize. And so in across the two books in the many cases that I've studied, that seems to be important. 
it seems to be most important in large prison populations. So the ethnic diversity in men's prisons in California increased substantially during the period that gangs were forming. Interestingly, in the women's prisons, there was an equal increase in the diversity of people incarcerated there. But because the prison population was so small, they were able to overcome what might have been some frictions to cooperation in that greater social distance. So what are some of the broader lessons we can draw from this, even potentially outside of the context of prisons themselves? Because libertarians are very interested in self-governance and the way that governance can emerge organically, particularly anarchist libertarians. So what can we learn for how to do that well in the world outside of prisons from the information in your book? So I've thought a bit about this, and I think there's maybe a few different lessons, um, some more and less, you know, maybe helpful. Um, The first is that there's been a lot of studies of self-governance amongst pretty privileged communities, People who are highly educated, who are very rich, have access to modern, uh, effective modern institutions. So I'm thinking of things like uh, diamond traders in New York who don't rely on written contracts, for example. This is like a very highly selective and effective, like if it's going to work somewhere, it would probably work in these really religiously homogenous communities. For the most part, people who are incarcerated lack all of these privileges and resources. They're not educated as well. They don't have access to financial resources. They don't have the social capital. And so one lesson would be, you know, maybe some claim along the lines of even in this less expected context, sometimes, only sometimes, but sometimes, you know, they can effectively provide extra legal governance in a way that, you know, rivals or, or, you know, approaches what we see in these sort of more privileged cases. Another example would be the the stock exchanges, the early stock exchanges, where you weren't allowed to legally enforce a contract for short sales, but a market for those things proliferated because of a variety of club good incentives. Um, so that's like a the best possible scenario, the best, the most welcoming context to, to do that. So, so I think that we should expand to some degree um, the, our understanding about the robustness of the ability to organize with a caveat, uh, which is that a lot of the organization um, is not very pretty. You know, a lot of what prison gangs do is uh, very undesirable. Um, You know, there's there's no rule of law in gangs. Um, They don't conform to general notions of morality. They exclude certain types of prisoners, former police officers, sex offenders. Um, And they they elevate the people that we may not think in sort of... um, that we want elevated, the people most willing to use violence, the people most motivated by money. Um, and it also just doesn't always work. The Andersonville case is a case study of failure. Um, so it's, in, it's, it's, it's about trying to figure out, well, what are the basic conditions in which we think this might emerge and might not be horrible and others in which, you know, it actually, you know, might, might be real bad. Does it imply, as you, in your general theory of the book, that we will, almost always see and the two things that really interest me coming out of your book for broader lessons are one the state capacity argument because there's some things that the state simply doesn't have the resources to do or we don't want to put the resources into that uh and then the other question is is whether or not it's inevitable that if the government comes in with huge heavy hand let's say they just put uh 
a ton more resources into police. So there are police on every corner. So we, you would have a withdrawal of the kind of social institutions that might be good for mitigating crime, like you mentioned, to the gangs uh, for drive-bys. And so is, is it always a give and take, therefore, between like how much attention the government pays to something and resources and how much we can govern ourselves? I'm sure it's much more compli- complicated than that. You know, and, and in part, if we go back to thinking about you know, whether prisons are effective or not is, you know, even if we think prisons should exist to reduce the cost of crime, there's multiple ways that we can reduce the cost of crime. And so at a minimum, we have to think, okay, well, what about prisons? What about policing? What about mental health services? What about social programs, after school programs, all the different things that exist out there? That's one big question is which, where are we getting the most bang for our buck across those things? And then how is that going to affect the extra legal governance that exists within prisons already? So if you change, you know, the severity of the, the war on drugs, you might get a systematically different set of people in the prisons, which might generate better or worse extra legal governance problems um, on, on its own. So it's, I, th- I agree, it's, it's absolutely very much a, a complicated project, which is in part why I sort of punt on it in the book. It's that this is like way too big a question for me to be able to, to take seriously. Thanks for listening. If you enjoy Free Thoughts, make sure to rate and review us in Apple Podcasts or in your favorite podcast app. Free Thoughts is produced by Landry Ayers. If you'd like to learn more about libertarianism, visit us on the web at libertarianism.org.